0: Morning, how's everyone? Good, my name's Eric if you don't know me and love to answer any questions or help you get connected to our church. Uh, give you a gift out in the welcome area or if you're online or you have a phone in front of you, you can snap a QR code, hit I'm new. Uh, fill out an information, we'll get you a gift and help you get plugged into our church. Also, you can hit prayer requests. We'd love to pray with you and walk with you or sometimes even we get to celebrate with you what God is doing and so that's a way you can communicate with us. And then just also, uh, our high school kids are up at Hume Lake this week, so keep them in your prayers as they're uh, learning about Jesus and the Gospels being preached, and uh, we want them to know and love Jesus and uh, have students that don't know Christ learn about Christ and know Him, and uh, they travel back tomorrow, so just keep them in your prayers, and we're in Titus chapter 1, Uh, we're picking up 10 through 16, and just important to you know, kind of keep keep in mind what's going on in our text, it, because Paul is establishing to Timothy, this is a church, this is what you're supposed to do as a church, this is how it's supposed to run. And sometimes when we talk about church, uh, it can be painful for some people. Uh, they were hurt at a church, something bad happened, um, it brings up painful memories, and uh, what, what ends up happening is that people use the behavior of a church or they use uh, they use a, a bad circumstance at a church to say, that's why I don't go to church. That's why I'm not a Christian. Um, that's why I don't believe the Bible. And what we're going to do is he's going to walk through and say, this is what a church is. This is what it's supposed to do. And we have to uphold it because that's what God calls us to. And so we're just going to walk through that. So just look diligently at the text Um, Because we want to do what God has asked us to do because for his glory and for our good. So let's pray and we'll hop in. Dear Jesus, uh, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your word. Uh, We're thankful for uh, the church that you sent your son to die and pay for us, that we could be your bride, that we could have a relationship with you and the Father Um, because of the work of the Son. And so we're thankful for that. And it's our prayer that uh, you would move our hearts to love you, to want to listen to you, uh, to do what you've asked us to do, uh, and that we would do it uh, not begrudgingly or grumpy, but with gladness and excitement and joy um, because we love you and we trust you. So we pray for your words and not mine. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do here uh, is look at just this idea that he's telling them, look, you need to have a sound face. And so kind of three keys to having a sound face uh, is identify, rebuke, and protect. We're going to look at those three three things uh, that the first thing he calls us to do is to identify or to silence. Uh, and we're going to look at divisive behavior uh, because divisiveness in churches causes churches to, fall apart. And what does he start off right at the bat? He says, hey, in verse nine, he tells them to hold firm, the trustworthy word as taught, give instruction and rebuke. And then he comes in 10 and he says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families teaching for shameful gain. So he's telling Titus, look, there's people in there who are talking poorly about the church. They're talking about the church leaders. They're being insubordinate. And it's this progression of they don't want to listen to what is being taught. And then they're being empty talkers. They're talking about it. And then they're deceiving people. And then they're gaining from the deception. So there's this progression. And so one of the first things you'll see is, you know, anytime there's divisiveness in a church, Um, often what I've found is it's because there is some type of hurt or anger over a program. A program comes or goes or it gets cut or it gets replaced and people get really, really upset. And what ends up happening is that hurt, it festers and they don't want to listen because um, they don't agree with what's going on. And so then the hurt, they don't listen, and then they talk, and then they deceive. And you see this going on, and it causes all types of tension in the church, and it upsets families because you are like, wow, I didn't know we had problems until you told me. Now we have all these problems, and our church is terrible, right? And it confuses people. And so one of the things you, you have to keep in mind is that the church is called the bride of Christ. And it's never okay to talk poorly about another man's wife. Is that a true statement? Oh wow, we got problem, men. That was an easy softball for your wife to be like, "Oh, my husband cares," right? Like seriously, you don't talk poorly about another man's wife. Is this true, men? I thank you. Okay, that's pretty basic, isn't it? When we're called the Bride of Christ. He's saying you don't talk about His Bride in this way, and that's why He's saying it must be silenced. It has to be stopped because Christ died and bled and paid for the church, that sinners might be saved and be reconciled to him, and they might spend eternity in heaven with him. So we have to be very, very careful. Um, let me put it to you maybe a little bit of another way, is if your kids are just railing against your spouse, is it a good practice to be like, well, that's your feelings, and you can feel about your father however you want, or your mom? Who am I to tell you you're wrong? They are a terrible, rotten parent, and for you and your truth, I support and affirm your feelings about your father. Does that sound like good parenting to you guys? No, and in the same way you have a family. In 1 Timothy, it talks about the household of God. as a church, and it's constructed in a way, and the family is to take care of each other in this way, and it's to have order. Well, one of the things he gets at is, hey, do not allow empty talk and deception and insubordination happen because it upsets people and it hurts the church. And one of the ways you'll find out is people will love their church until they change something. And then all of a sudden a change happens and then they don't want to listen anymore. And then all of a sudden they start talking about it and they try to gain people to their side and it creates divisions in the church. And all of a sudden they have all these problems you didn't even know about. Um, hopefully I can I can bring this up. It's been long enough that no one's still really hurt by this. But we used to have a Saturday night service a long time ago. And uh they decided, the elders and uh decided, you know what, that's not a direction we're gonna go anymore. Well, I was the high school pastor, so like I was a pastor, but I didn't, I wasn't a part of the decision making. And I had a woman come to me and she's like, this is terrible, they don't care about us. They don't love us. They only care about themselves. And I'm like, well, no, they're trying to help the whole church. And well, you know, one of those elders, he's a bad businessman, right? And I'm like, okay, what does this have to do with Saturday night service? She's like, everything. He had a shady business deal with my husband. And I'm like, and you're just now saying this? She's like, well, yeah, because they cut the Saturday night service. Can't you see? And I'm like, no, I can't see. All of a sudden, people have all these problems they've saved for the moment something happens at church they don't like, and then they throw them all in. And then they start telling people, oh, that's a bad elder, that's a bad person, that's a bad this. And all of a sudden, we have ungodly leaders who don't love the church and hate people because we cut a program. That becomes a serious problem. So what he's saying is, look, that needs to be silenced. That can't keep happening because that's going to upset families. That's going to upset Churches, and that's going to cause people to not love the church or not want to go to the church. And what we need to see is he's like, look, there needs to be order. That's why he says, look, identify the divisiveness and silence it because it's not profitable and it's not helpful. And usually, what you'll see is, you know, hurt people hurt people in a church. And when a program gets taken away, it becomes very hurtful to them. And it becomes upsetting. Um, there was a time I remember when we had to put uh, a stop to uh, a study that was going on. And hopefully, I can say this because here's, here's where I, I get in so much tension trying to preach. It's like if I name a name, then it's like, oh, he likes that guy. Oh, he doesn't like that guy. Oh, he's this camp, that camp. I'm just trying to have a conversation. You know what I'm saying? So there was a Mark Driscoll Bible study on marriage. And this was years ago. And, and me and one of the pastors reread it. And we're going through it. And there's this one chapter that's like, whoa, it's not good. We're not going to do the study. So all of a sudden, this became in a, you hate Mark Driscoll. You don't think uh, he teaches the Bible. He's a false teacher. He's a heretic. No, 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 we didn't say that. You know, he. we we believe that there's true things in there. Oh, so you hate women because he hates women. And you're like, holy cow, we're just trying to tell you to not have a study that, that we think isn't helpful because there's probably... A thousand other books on marriage you could do? That's all we're trying to say. But then it festers in, oh, they, they think he's a heretic. They think he's terrible. Well, this other guy's like, well, I came to Jesus under that guy's teaching. Are you saying I'm not a Christian? And it's like, wow. You see how this progresses? The insubordination, then the empty talk, then the deception. Oh, the pastors don't like women because they think Mark Driscoll preaches the gospel sometimes. Or, oh, they don't believe in marriage because they won't let that book. They're not supporting young married because this is how we learn. And it's like, wow, that escalated quick. The the role, this is why it says in verses 9 up there that you have to put elders in church. They protect the doctrine of the church. And they rebuke, turn away from, when things don't line up. And I'm saying that's not a good study for our church. We don't know the man. Never met the man. We're not making Decisions about his Christianity, his feelings towards the other gender. We're just saying that book's not a good study for us. Can't it be that simple? It should be that simple, absolutely. Uh, But that's how things escalate and, and feelings get hurt. And all of a sudden we're declaring all these absolutes. And it's like, wow. And here's what happens is oftentimes you'll see uh, that these conversations never happen around a pastor or elder, and then they get promoted through small groups and and prayer requests right and no one says anything and what happens is people start getting upset they think oh wow i didn 't know our church was so such a mess and so upside down and it takes people to say, "Hey, you know what we shouldn 't do that that 's not profitable it doesn 't help the church it doesn 't help." Jesus, it doesn't help us grow in our face. So just to start thinking through, like, man, if I've been hurt, I should probably deal with that hurt, or I should let it go and move on. But to bring it up and try and create camps, and it gets this group against that group, and then we start moving down this process, that's just just not healthy. So one thing you see is that'll happen through uh, being hurt. Or disagreement. Another way you have divisiveness happen in a church comes from First Timothy. <clears throat> and, and I'm not trying to pick on people, but it's just true is sometimes gossip and slander occur because people just have too much time on their hands. You ever notice that when you have too much time on your hands, you have a propensity maybe to get in trouble, and it's easier to get in trouble than, than if you're staying busy and doing what you're supposed to be doing. First Timothy 5:13 through 15. Hints at this. It goes, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have the younger widows marry bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Now, some people read that and they're like, man, that's really harsh towards women. It's like, no, if you keep reading 1 Timothy, he says that if men don't provide for their families, that they're less than a a non-Christian. That's pretty harsh too, isn't it? Just me and you, buddy, we think that's harsh. That's a hard statement, isn't it? what's he getting at? It's like, look, men need to work. They need to provide for their families. They need to, Ephesians 5, wash their bride with the word of God, keep them holy, keep them pure, keep them spotless. And then if you read Proverbs 31, a woman's taking care of her home and her kids and she's helping make money. If we're doing what we're supposed to do biblically, we don't have time to, to care about random things in the church that we hate that turn into these huge gossip chains. So I was saying, look, do not be idle. Because if you're idle, all of a sudden you start to care about things and then they grow and then you talk about things. Like, do you know one time I got told that we don't care about old people because we got these speakers right here? Right? That was some free time for somebody to really think through how to connect those two things. But that's not it at all. We don't, the, the, the elders and pastors, we never sit in a room and say, man, how can we tank men's ministry? Like, that just, I just don't like that ministry. Let's, let's get rid of it. We're never trying to purposely tank a ministry, trying to love the kids, trying to love evangelism, the, the lost, the disciple, the women, the men, the kids. All of it. And sometimes that means you change your program, you change your direction, you you don't do a certain study. And sometimes when people have too much time on their hands, they just start filling in blanks and drawing conclusions that just don't exist. That's why the Bible says don't be idle, stay at work, keep doing what you're supposed to do, go to your church, learn the word of God, worship, serve each other, love each other, and silence empty speech. And deception from the insubordinate. Now the next part of this he starts to get into is he mentions evil and he mentions laziness and then in gluttony. You know, gluttony is not just overconsumption of food; it's an overconsumption. You ever heard the term "glutton for punishment"? People like punishment. Well, there's some people that like chaos. They love chaos. They thrive in chaos. So they stir up chaos. Things are going well, and that doesn't sit well with them. So they have to create a controversy, create something that's dramatic so that either maybe it draws attention to them or it draws attention to, oh, they're not as perfect as you think. And so they stir up this. And it's that desire to have more and more and more and create chaos and chaos. And he's like, look, they need to be silenced. Why? Because it's upsetting whole families. How sad is it when people get turned off about the church by the church? It's one thing when a non-Christian is like, they told me I needed to change and repent and Jesus is the only way and there's a heaven and a hell. Jesus tells us the world will hate us for that, doesn't he? What a shameful thing when people from their own church go and turn off other people from the church. So I'd say, and this is upsetting families. It's creating divisions. It's creating camps. There's insubordination. There's deception. There's empty speech, and it needs to stop. And so, as we just think through that first point of just, we need to identify what are, you know, where is there insubordination? Where is there this divisiveness? And am I a part of that divisiveness? And and if I'm If I am, I need to stop. The second part, if I'm hearing it, am I saying, hey, don't do that. That's not profitable. It's the bride of Christ. And if we're being really honest, if you want to find a problem with the church, you always will. It's sinful leaders leading sinful people. It'll never be perfect till Jesus takes us to heaven. That's the only time we'll have perfection. But the church is to be a place that God's instituted where he says there's, there's, Godly leaders there to love you, teach you God's word, protect the doctrine, help you grow, and help you go out on Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. And we're to do that together for the glory of God and to the good of us. And it doesn't help when there's empty speech, deception for shameful gain. So that's part one. Part two now, he says, rebuke the false teaching. And and this, this gets hard, right? 13. This testimony is true therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. So he gives this very pointed rebuke. Why is that such like a criminal term in our culture now? We're just, if if someone has some weird thing to believe about Jesus, the Bible or marriage, it's like we just need to affirm it. We need to encourage them. And we need to tell them that it's okay to believe that. That's not what the Bible says, does it? It says rebuke false teaching. It says rebuke them sharply. You know, we don't really have a ton of Jewish myths in our culture right now. But we do have myths, don't we? And one of the things our culture loves to do is find something new and then prop it up as if, God's word didn't address this for thousands of years. And now we finally know what it means. And now we can get to it. God's word was deficient until the internet and Google came out. And now we can know what it really meant. So the other people for 2,000 years, just they suffered with poor Bible reading because the internet didn't exist. They didn't know Al Gore, right? So you look at that, and that's why they have new perspectives on Paul, new perspectives on marriage, new perspectives on the New Testament. That's your first hint. Something's, be be skeptical of that. Another one, be skeptical. When someone says, I have a word from the Lord. And I'm not trying to pick on my Pentecostal friends, but let's just think about this biblically really quick. If you say, I have a word from the Lord, the words of God are equal to the Bible, true? If it's the word of God and these words are from God, So that means whatever proceeds from your mouth can never be wrong because the word of God is never wrong. Why can't we approach things maybe like, hey, and I'm not saying God doesn't speak to us and tell us things and warn us about things, but wouldn't it probably be wiser if we said, I feel like God is telling me this, but I could be wrong. Is that a fair way to approach it? That's never how it's approached. God told me you have to marry me, and you're way out of my league, right? And you're like, wait, so disobey God or marry you? I don't think I like that God, right? You know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, you've put all these weird things in. In the Old Testament, if if you got a prophecy wrong, you were stoned, because the Word of God is never false. That's how seriously they took it, and so that's something If someone says, hey, I have a word from the Lord, but whoa, slow your roll. Are you saying this absolutely is on par with Scripture? Or are you saying you've been praying and maybe God's trying to, like, warn us or tell us or help us out? Yeah, the second one. Okay. That's a much easier position to be in. Don't you think? Okay. Another one to look through on the on the rebuking side. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but the whole deconstructing our faith. This really popular in Christianity right now is, Oh, I can't know if anything I was ever taught was ever real ever because this guy now, you know, uh, doesn't believe he believes marriage between a man and a woman. So I can't believe it. Or this pastor had an affair or when I was growing up, it was so militant and so strict and black and white. I can't believe anything now. You guys hearing this? OK, so when when you hear that kind of language, what are they trying to say is, well, you can't really know anything except that you can know that you can't know anything. And I might know something, but I wouldn't know because you can't know anything. It takes away your ability to know anything. Then that takes away your ability to make a decision about anything because it may or may not be what God's Word actually says. That's a problem, isn't it? So when you're doing that, and it's built off this premise that my faith is based off a pastor or based off a Bible teacher, and when they fall, everything they say falls. That's not true. If they taught it from the word of God, it's always true. If it's from the word of God, you can hold it. See, here's here's what's happening. When it comes to knowledge, there has to be a first cause, right? An uncaused cause. Knowledge has to come from somewhere. Is that true? Anyway, it has to come from somewhere. And what we're saying is knowledge comes from God, He is the starting point. God gives us knowledge. That knowledge is knowable and revealed in God's Word, the person of Jesus Christ, in nature. We can know these things about God. So if we were taught these things from the Scripture, we can hold them up and trust them and know that they are true, regardless of who says it. If It came from the Bible. So these are some of the things that people are trying to do. They're trying to discredit the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard you know, in the early 2000s, it was popular to say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You guys remember that movement? That's like saying, I love my marriage, but I hate my spouse. You know what I mean? You can't do that. That's his bride. Well, now the popular movement is, I love Jesus, but I hate the Bible. Right? And the Bible is very clearly, you know, John 1, the word of God, word was with God, was God. Right? And Jesus is the word. Jesus is the truth. So we need to be very, very careful when people are deconstructing, you know, how they were raised. It doesn't mean you deconstruct the Bible. It is our first cause or our first source, primary source of truth where all truth flows from. That's how we have the ability to rebuke people and say, hey, that's simply not true. We're in a world of trouble if we have to affirm every new feeling and every new truth someone comes up with, don't we? I mean, think of it this way. You're going to a non-Christian and you're saying, hey, you should become a Christian. And they're like, well, doesn't God's word always change? And you're like, well, yeah, he could be wrong 20 years from now when science and Google tell us that we, you know, got the anatomy wrong or we got biology wrong. Well, I'll just wait 20 years when you guys really know if the Bible, what else the Bible's wrong about. Does that make sense as you process that? You got to think through it. These are myths our world believes, that the truth is not knowable, that you can't trust anything you were taught. You have to be skeptical of everything. You can't truly know what God said. So when you think through that, it's important that we know when we hear false teaching, you don't just say that's your truth. You say God's word doesn't say that. And you you ought not to teach contrary to what it says. Verse 14, it says, devoting themselves to the Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. Okay, so we've shifted. Okay, identify maybe where there's divisiveness, gossip, and slander. It needs to be silenced. Find the false teaching, rebuke it. And then this next part is you need to protect your witness. Verse 15, it says, to the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So what is he getting at? He's like, hey, you know what, Christians? Your doctrine needs to match your practice. This is why he tells them that their minds and their conscience are defiled. They're not maintaining what is pure in the word of God. Therefore, their bad doctrine leads to bad choices, bad lifestyles. Therefore, they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So what he's saying is all this works together. If we're going to do good work, that means we're going to do what the Bible says. We're going to believe what the Bible says, then we're going to do what the Bible says. And when we divorce the two, it creates lots of problems. So the church is here to help make sure we're learning from God's word, and then we're doing God's word, and then we go out in the world to share about Christ. Our doctrine matches our practice. You should never have a non-Christian come to church and be like, wow, that was just like work. Everyone was mean, cold, and angry, and swearing like a sailor. That's a problem, isn't it? They're saying, look, the the purity of the church needs to be upheld. But the same is when they see the Christian, their speech is different, their marriage is different, their parenting is different, the way they view money is different. They are completely and utterly different. He's saying when those two work together, that's how God designed it. So some questions to ask ourselves is as our doctrine changes, you'll notice morals change with it. Because if we can't trust the word of God with marriage, can we trust the word of God with sexuality? Can we trust the word of God with what you can watch on TV, on your vocabulary choice, on your money choice, on do you even need to go to church? Is that even needed? All these things start to unfold. Because as the word of God becomes undone, so does our morality in the same way. And the two work together. That's why Paul's telling Titus, look, you got to hold the fort you're in Crete. You're with evil, lazy liars. You need to set up a church with godly men who teach the Word of God, protect the church, protect it from liars and false teachers so that they can do the work in Crete that I've called them to. That sounds like a very familiar setting, doesn't it? That we live in a time where the Word of God is rejected, when Christian values are rejected, And God calls us to be a church that stands firm on his word and on his values and his morality in the midst of that. And that as that creeps in, we don't let it change the word of God and we don't let it change what God has called us to. So a a question to ask ourselves, a a good question to ask is, have I allowed my doctrine to shift? Like when I look at, have, have I made, Allotments in the word of God to fit the cultural narrative. Okay, now this is important. Why is this? Look up here in verse two. I want you to see this. Paul addresses something that's not common in his introductions, but it's common to this introduction, right? He says, In hope, eternal, in hope of eternal life, which God, catch this, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God who never lies. Why is he saying that? Because the Cretans are liars. You know what's interesting is we were to say that in our church culture today, like Paul's mean. He called them liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. He's a mean guy. What is Paul doing? He's identifying the problem in the culture, saying that culture could come. And he's saying, look, God lies, never lies. These people lie. So if you're to look at that, Let's just follow me on the logic. If God never lies, that means his words are always true, correct? So that means his commandments are always true, and his commandments always are what we're supposed to do. Is that a fair logic? He never lies. That means his commands are always true. His word is always true. So then it's a problem when we start changing his doctrine. When we change a man and a woman, that makes God a liar. When we change the institution of marriage, that makes God a liar. When we say it's okay to curse like a sailor, but God says in you know, Ephesians 4.29, we're not to do that. That makes God a liar. When we say we can have sexual immorality on a screen or outside of marriage because now we have protection and data and science, that makes God a liar. When we say now, hey, you don't need to go to church because we have the internet and you can pick your church and you can go to church wherever you want. That makes God a liar because His word no longer works because we're saying we live in a new time in a new era where there's new things and that no longer applies. You catch the logic there. God is not a liar; His word is always sufficient. Therefore, our minds and our conscience cannot be defiled. We profess to know God, but we can't deny that profession with our behavior, and we will deny that profession with our behavior if we deny. His word as taught, as presented, as given in the Bible. That's why verse 9, he says, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And so what you're seeing here in Titus is he's saying, look, Titus, I need you to set up a church in a very, very rough place. And it's going to be hard. There's going to be people that come in that are going to slander the church. They're going to lie about the church. They're going to come up with myths and try to change the church and get them to chase after Satan. They're going to try to get the church people to act like the world and not act like Christ. You need to hold firm with elders, rebuke, silence, and keep moving with them towards Christ. And as we unfold the rest of Titus, you're going to see that. You're like, okay, we're rebuking, we're silencing, we're teaching. Now, you men, You teach these younger men what it means to love the Lord, what it means to be a husband, what it means to have a job and work. Hey, you women, you need to teach these younger women what it's like to be a mom, what it's like to be a wife, what it's like to be a child of God where beauty comes from, what it's like to have a submitting relationship in your marriage. And you're saying this is how we're going to survive in this crazy culture is through the church teaching the word of God as taught and presented faithfully for the thousands of years prior to that. And so that's what holds true for us today. If we're going to survive this crazy mess is to uphold the trustworthy word as taught, to not let there be divisiveness in our church, deception and false teaching, that we would hold firm to the word of God and then practice what it says because we believe he never lies. He's always right. He always loves us. He wants what's best for us. And sometimes it hurts and sometimes it's hard, but we ultimately trust God in all things. Amen. Let's walk through some questions for us to ask um, ourselves. Why is it important to address gossip, slander, and malice and empty speech in the church? You know, we we kind of walked through that. One, it's another man's bride, it's the bride of Christ. You don't do that. But two, it upsets families and it takes away from trusting the leadership and and from trusting what God has instituted and from moving forward in our faith and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Why is rebuking treated as criminal in the modern day church? Have you noticed that? Like you can't critique anything. You're mean. You hate. No, I'm just saying that statement's wrong. Like when I tell you that Joel Osteen is a word of faith teacher, and what he's teaching is heresy. I'm not saying I hate him and I hope he dies, right? But that's how it comes off, doesn't it? What we're saying is, man, I hope that guy, you know, sometimes learned that the Bible never says that if you believe more or if you have more faith, you'll always be healed and you'll get more money, right? We should be able to say just very plainly and in love Jesus was perfect and he was crucified. Therefore, that makes no sense. And the Bible never says it. We should be able to say that to each other, right? Towards uplifting each other making sure we're coming from the scripture or not believing false things or falling for things that are bad. Okay, three, are there any habits you have that would make people doubt your Christianity? There's a huge component in the Bible that says, you know, Um, our character will be our currency for sharing the gospel. So that when we share with people that there's nothing better than following Jesus, you need to know him and love him. They would look at our life and go, yeah, I could tell you're kind of different. But instead they wouldn't say, well, look at your language. Look at who you hang out with. Look at the way you talk about the church. Look at the way you talk about other Christians. Like, why would I want to do that? I can... Be a pagan and have just as much chaos in my life as you okay. so working that out how can i you know look at my habits four how can you make sure that you are fit to work for the lord this again is making sure that our doctrine aligns with our practice that we're going to the word of god and we're justifying our our speech our marriage our parenting our finances uh, our, our friendships, all these things we're looking at and saying uh, these are in line with what God says. When I sin, I repent. My goal is to be like Christ, not run from Christ. I don't try to cause controversy in the church. I don't speak ill about other people. I'm not gossiping so that I can be of you sent out into the world to tell people about Jesus and tell them about the saving work of Jesus so that they'll want to know and love Jesus. Right, And then five, How can you keep the doctrine of the church pure? And and this is hard. I get it. You're going to get hurt here. I'm going to let you down. Some of the elders are going to let you down. Someone in here is probably going to cut you off in the parking lot, make you really angry, and make you four minutes late to lunch, and then you're never going to eat because of the four minutes of the parking lot cost you, right? All of these things are going to happen. And there's got to be this ability that says, you, you know what? The church isn't perfect but it is the bride of Christ. We will love it, cherish it, uphold it, not bash it, speak ill of it, put it down, but be a part of helping other people see the beauty of the church where we love people and we encourage people and we help people out when they're in need. And sometimes, yes, we even correct people when they're going the wrong direction. And sometimes we make decisions that are hard that people don't like, but we love Christ. We love his word. We want to be like him, and we work together to do that, and we're committed to that even when we're hurt and we disagree for the glory of God and the good of us. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you, and we praise you, uh, that your word is absolutely uh, helpful, profitable, and and to our good, and I pray that we would trust you in all things. As we walk through the book of Titus, we would see how you've ordered us uh, to trust you to trust how you've set up order for us in the church to grow in our faith, to be a light to the world, to edify one another, to correct one another through the word of God. And it's our prayer we would now come to a time of worship. We would praise you and thank you for loving us. Praise you and thank you for sending your son to die for us. But praise you and thank you that you've communicated to us through your word that we can know you, we can love you, we can know about you, we can know what we're supposed to do, we can have hope for the present, hope for the future, because your word tells us, because you love us, you've communicated with us. May we be forever, forever grateful for the way you've loved us. May we praise you now in worship. Jesus, and we pray. Amen.